0: Thanks, Michelle, so much. And, uh, amen. Well. Uh, what we're going to do is, if you have a Bible, go to Psalm 16. Here's what we do. We normally kind of walk through books of the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, just because we want to be uh, honest with the Scriptures and see all that God might want to teach us and the counsel of what He says. And uh, we're just going to this summer, for the summer, take a break. We just finished uh, Habakkuk, and now we're going to just hit Psalms for the summer and kind of pick eight to ten different Psalms and, and kind of walk through what God might to say in those. And then we're going to hit Galatians in uh, the fall, in September. So those are the love to get ahead, go ahead and do that and read, but but try to stay in the Psalms this summer. Uh, Psalm 16 this morning, here's what we're going to do in Psalm 16. We did Psalm 1 last week, which was beautiful seeing uh, basically the, the, the summary of the Psalms and really the whole scriptures. Now Psalm 16 is, is really just a gospel imperative. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing Psalm, and I just, um, I really don't want to tease out each verse exegetically like I normally like to do. I just want to kind of see the overview and the profound main truth that I believe David wants to lay before us in um, this prayer here. Now the psalms I always say are really more songs and prayers than really uh, stuff just to be studied. So the people of God would would take these psalms and they would actually uh, sing them or pray them as ways of worship to God and remind themselves of uh, encouragements and truths. And so um, Psalm 16, I'm just going to read Psalm 16, the whole thing, and then I'm going to kind of look at a few texts that I want us to see. So Psalm 16 uh, verse 1 says this, "'Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge.'" Forevermore, let's ask God for help. Father, we need your Holy Spirit now to illuminate us, to give us spiritual sight and spiritual hearing, to allow us to understand any bit of what we just read. So God, would you come and would you help us where we need help? Would you convict, where we need conviction? Would you exhort, when we need exhortation? Would you encourage, when we need encouragement? Would you comfort, where we need comfort? And God, would you above all lead us to you where there is pleasure and joy forevermore. God, might we know not just a lot about you, but know you and pursue you and drink from you as our fountainhead. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, verse one is kind of where I want to start, because you're going to see kind of this, this cry from David, this, this plea to basically have something secure. It's really all about security. This whole uh, text here is, is how do you find security? How do you find sureness? How do you find a foundation that's, that's unshakable? And so he starts out in verse one, and he says this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Um, So so David starts out this prayer. It's really just a a cry for safety, a cry for preservation, a cry to have a a refuge somewhere. Now, what I love about this is, listen, if you're breathing, right, um, you know that all of us have this cry to some degree. Um, We're looking for refuge. We're looking for a foundation that's unshakable. Some of us look for it in the wrong places. We'll look for it in marriage. We'll look for it in work. We'll look for it in our children. We'll look for it in uh, the things that we do, in vocation and how people uh, perceive us. We'll look for unshakable foundations in all types of places, but but the cry of David's heart is, I know there's only one spot I can go, one place I can land where my feet will ever be secure. And he's gonna see that's only in God alone. So really this initial cry lays before us an important question. Why do we need this? Why do we need security? Why do we need something that's unmoving? And and where do we get it? Um, Where do we run to? Or, what do we run to to heaven? Um, there's nothing in this world with foundations that are eternal. We, we've talked about this exhaustively as we've just preached through books. Habakkuk was a wonderful book that laid before us the realities that there's no firm foundation outside of God, right? There's no ultimate comfort outside of God. There's no ultimate refuge outside of God when trouble strikes, right? We either have a God who is sovereignly in charge of all things, who doesn't just know time, but exists outside of time, that not only knows the future, but stands in the future. We we serve a God like that, and that, that's comforting for us as Christians. And so, if you're a human being who thinks at all, uh, you know that everything in this life will pass away. If you've lived long enough at all, you know that all those things you search for, the love that will last, the, the joy that's enduring, you know that all those things begin to fall through your fingertips every day that you continue to walk, right? Uh, because they're, they're, they're shakable. Uh, they're not secure. They're insecure things. And so David cries out like we cry out. I want a kingdom that can't be shaken. I want a love that I can't lose. I want a joy that endures. I want a security that can't be robbed from me. And so we're going to see that he's going to show us uh, where not to go and where to go. And so uh, if we're a people who are secure, unshaken, we must see that number one, our identity reveals our idolatry. Um, Number one, our identity reveals our idolatry. Look at verse four. He he shows this: the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. Um, One of the first things you have to do to actually begin to even search for security is is do some good, honest stock of your soul, and look at what do I chase. Like, like, what am I chasing for foundation? What am I chasing for security? Interesting, in Hebrews 11, major theme of scripture, you got even Abraham himself, who uh, his heart wasn't in his wealth, wasn't in his money, wasn't in the land. It was, in, He was searching for a city that had foundations that were secure, not built by man, but built by God. He was searching for that. That's what gave him firmness and security. And, and so the first thing you have to ask yourself is, what are you chasing? Because whatever we chase is what we worship. And whatever you worship is what defines you. And whatever defines you is what will instruct your hope and your joy. Just natural progression. David says here something interesting. The sorrowful, the insecure, the shaken, they don't just believe in false gods. They run after them. So not just believing, in, believing about them, they're actually pursuing them. Now, in, in ancient times, you had a lot of gods, and basically there's like a god of fertility, a god of war, a god of athletics, a god of wealth, a god of all these different things. So there was divine power and authority behind all of those identities. Now, some of us are going, well, I don't really like, believe in those deities today, yet functionally you probably pursue those things just as they used to. So you chase them just like they used to chase them. There are those identities in you that, that you believe there's divine authority behind them and so you put all your weight and worth there. And that's what you pursue. That's what you go after. And that's why this word to run after means to pant. Like you got your tongue hanging out right? You're just panting after that thing. I just have to have that job promotion. I just have to have more income. I just have to have this rearranged in my family. I just have to have this relationship fixed that's strained. You're panting after those things, trying to accomplish some divine ability that those things could never give you. So so your identity, where your identity is, reveals what you worship. You're, You're pursuing these gods. And what's amazing is he shows when you don't pursue the God of the scriptures, sorrows just increase, sorrows multiply because those things are not unshakable. Last time I checked, your spouse cannot be a good God for you, right? Your husband and wife, they cannot fill that role. Your job is a terrible God. It cannot possibly be what you want it to be. It'll never hold up. Friendships, relationships, right? Eventually, they'll betray you. Eventually, they'll let you down. Those things, no matter what you do, no matter where you place your weight and worth outside of Christ and his work will always consistently walk through and run through your fingertips, will it not? So that's what David is showing here. He's showing those who run after those things and pant after those things, it's meaning for us. And David says, those who go after those other identities, other gods will have increased sorrow as time goes on. You'll be more shaken, not more secure. Because if you end up getting those things, you're actually panting after and they slip away. You'll be shattered and shaken because they're passing away. So number one, um, you got to see what you chase. Your identity reveals your idolatry. And number two, which we're going to spend the remainder of our time on, is the pathway to an unshakable security, a refuge, preservation. Preserve me, O God, is you need worship alteration, not just behavior modification. I say this a lot, but you need a, you need a transition of worship and not just a change of behavior. And, and some of you are going, oh, I've heard you say this before. Listen, this is profound in the text here in Psalms, and it is going to do us good if, if God even lets us understand a morsel so of it, okay? This can transform your Christian life, transform your pursuit of joy, transform your killing of sin, pers- perform, just totally transform even your, your gathering of worship. So here's what he says in verse five. You'll see a shift. There's people who run after false gods, not the God of the scripture, not the God who sent Christ, and their sorrows increase. They're more shakable, they're more insecure. Here's what David does, verse five. The Lord is my portion my chosen portion, and my cup, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I'll be secure. So so David says... um, there's one thing that's my portion. That, that means your, your wealth. You could even say your, your meaning. And he goes, it's, it's the Lord. He goes, you're my cup. That means your joy. Okay, so God alone is my wealth. God alone is my joy. Now, now, some of you are going, well, didn't David already believe in God? Like, doesn't he already believe in him? Yeah, and that's why it's so important to see and understand we're not talking about simply believing in God. He is running after him. He's not running after a false God. He's running after the true God. So, so understand, there's a difference. And we're not talking about simply believing about God or believing he exists. We're talking about running to him as your portion, as your joy, as your security, as your wealth. It's, it's you're my all. You're the thing that I'm after. Right? It's not just sitting around going, I want to learn cute new doctrines about you. It's allowing those theological distinctives about God and his infinite perfections to drive you to pursue him. Right? I I say all the time, it's growing in our knowledge of God that leads to a life of good works. It's not you do a life of good works and then all of a sudden magically you're in love with Jesus and then you begin to know him. It's the other way around. And so he's showing this here that you are my joy. Because false gods can't even counsel me. They can't even speak. You instruct me you teach me the ways that are right. You teach me the pathway to joy. Um, Here's what's terrifying, is you can be faithfully religious and have never done this. You can be totally faithfully religious and have never run after the Lord. You can be somebody who goes to church. You can be somebody who says your prayers. You can be somebody who gives to the poor. You can be someone who even believes all the right doctrines. But if something goes wrong with your health, something goes wrong with your financials, something goes wrong in your family, and you go, hey, God, where are you at? I mean, I thought we signed the contract in this gospel that says, uh, I'll represent you well if you do these things for me. As soon as that breaks, as soon as there's a fracture there, you might realize, maybe for the first time in your life, you've never done this. Because this is, you're my all. I mean, even when all that other stuff fades, even when other stuff goes through my fingertips, man, I'm still secure because I'm pursuing you. You can't be taken from me. Or even death makes it better. I mean, even, even death makes pleasures forevermore. I mean, loving Christ, I mean, in his glory, enjoying his beauty, I mean, in the fullest sense, we can't even understand or conceive of or fathom this side of heaven, right? First John 3, we see in part, right? When we fully see him as he is, we shall be like him. What's amazing is if you keep reading, it says you thinking about it actually purifies you. That You actually considering that reality is what actually changes you and preserves you. That's for uh, later. But, but here he's showing us that, that you can do this. Maybe some of us for the first time in our lives need an alteration of worship. You don't need to be told something else to do. Like You don't need to be told another command or, or another good Christian deed or another Christianese phrase. Like, you need to be told that your heart needs an exchange of worship. You're worshiping these false identities. You're running after these other false gods that increase sorrow, that do not bring about security. Now, this is why if you study the way Jesus interacts with people, I love it. If, If you study Jesus in the Gospels, you'll see that most of his responses in the conversations have little to do with the behavior alone and almost everything to do with the heart of the person or the individual or the group of people. You see that over and over and over. In all of his ministries, it has little to do strictly with do this deed, follow this moral instruction, and everything trying to get at the heart of the man or woman. Look at, flip to uh, the book of Luke, Luke 18. There's an example. You see imagery of Psalm 16 in the rich young ruler. And I'm going to show you how you're going to see all this. Then we'll get back to Psalm 16. Look at um, Luke 18 is this example where this uh, young wealthy ruler approaches Jesus. Jesus' face has been set towards Jerusalem. He's, He's preaching. He's teaching he's healing, he's instructing, and this rich young ruler heals, hears about Jesus. Um, hears, he, he claims to know the way to eternal life, uh, claims he knows how to instruct people. Look at what he says in uh, verse, I think it's like 21 or 22. Um, he says this, a uh, good teacher. Well, he approaches Jesus like most people today, right? You're just a good man, not the God man. Right, you're just someone who gives us good moral instruction. You're not someone who came to rescue from sin. You're not someone who came to give reconciliation with God. You're not someone who came to forgive us of our opposition towards the God of the universe. You came just as a good man with moral instruction. Um, that's not Jesus. So he says, "Good teacher," he doesn't believe he's God. He says, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus said to him, "Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone." You know the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. What an arrogant little boy, right? I mean, oh, I hear all those commandments, I'm good. As far as I know, I'm as good as it gets. you imagine Tell that to Jesus? the fully righteous one. So the ruler approaches Jesus. He has this common misunderstanding, right? Um, other religions, philosophies, ideologies, they, they all say this. Um, they put Jesus in the category of good teacher. He's like Gandhi, Mother Teresa. Not savior, but, but he's good at instructing us, which is why Jesus says, um, don't call me good unless you think I'm God because only God alone is truly good. And something occurs in the ruler's life that David is explaining happens in the soul of a man in Psalm 16. This is amazing. And maybe it's happened to some of you. Maybe you've lacked fulfillment. Or maybe you've wanted to overcome some addiction or some vice. Maybe that's occurred in your life. And you thought, hmm, maybe if I just become a little more spiritual or a little more religious, um, that'll somehow help this. Maybe if I attend more religious events. Maybe if I become a good neighbor. Maybe if I even obey some of what God would ask. So here's what you're doing. You're engaging with moralism. You're not engaging with Jesus. Here's the the horrific problem with that. You're going to perpetually live your life in your own strength, not at all tied to the cross and and work of Jesus Christ, and you're going to consistently hit a ceiling that you'll never get past. So benchmarks of your spiritual life will be frustration, it'll be bitterness, it'll be resentment, it'll be exhaustion because you're trying to do something you were never made to do outside of his personal work, outside of worshiping his name and renown, outside of leaning into his cross and his resurrection. You're just trying to improve your behavior like this rich young ruler. And so here he's just revealing this imagery of Psalm 16, right? This is the imagery. The ruler knows in his longing heart it's not satisfied. He knows sorrow's multiplying, even though he's going as, as far as I know, this is as good as it gets, which is why he still asks, Well, how do I inherit eternal life? Because something's off. Like something's missing here. There's still discontentment in my heart. I'm still lacking. Look at Jesus' response, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell everything you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus wants to get to the heart. What are you worshiping? Like, he doesn't really care about, man, do you not commit adultery? Do you not murder? Yeah, I mean, obviously those things matter. Obviously, that's an ongoing ethic that matters for society. It's how not all God designed us to operate and work as his beautifully designed humanity, but his purpose in asking questions, his purpose in responding is to get to after the heart. He does not want to change the man's behavior. He wants to change the man's God. It's what he wants to do. So he, he says, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I know. What he's really saying here, what's amazing in this text is he says, okay, let me reveal what you worship. Go sell everything, give it to the poor. He's not saying go sell it, everything you have and give it to the poor and then all of a sudden you'll be righteous. All of a sudden you'll inherit eternal life. He knows that the man worships comfort more than he worships Jesus. He knows that, that the man's God is what he's done and what he's accumulated and how he's lived. This was me, man. All my good works were damning me until I was faced freshman year in college with the truths of God and how holy he was and how sinful I was, and I realized good works damn and bad works damn. That's the beauty of the gospel. So the overly self-righteous and the one who's actually falsely prideful in his humility both get a win in the gospel because both need Christ. Those who think they're good enough and those who think they're not good enough both get a win in Christ. Christ. Both get a win in the gospel. And here, I love this. This is why he walks away sad. This is why he walks away sad. His real God was not Jesus. See, the gospel leads to worship. Moralism leads to just a continually exchanging of idols that leads to a life that's exhaustive and perpetually enslaving and not liberating. Listen. The gospel, the work of Christ, dying for you as your substitute on your behalf for your sin, rising and saying, man, I'm your champion. You get my righteousness for your sinful life. That's the exchange. Listen, that message creates a worship, a pursuit of God. If you're just a moralistic, behavioral, kind of good, well-looking person in the church, that's going to lead to exhaustion and a perpetual exchanging of idols that leads to you being more enslaved than ever liberated. Now, now, here's why this happens. Let me give you an example, okay? This is how it plays out. Let's say that you just pick anger, okay? All the men in the room, right? Look, we're all there. If you say you're not, you're lying, right? So, so all the men. We, we have some weird perpetual anger somewhere, right? Someone offed you when you were young or your, your boss, you think that it'd be a trillion-dollar company if they just listened to you. So, so we, we've got that, that somewhere in us, right? And let's say we say, okay, let's just follow the, the, the rules of anger management and try to tease this out, right? Okay, that's not awful, that, that's okay, but listen, you know what you do? You know what we do? Uh, you just simply swap an idol of anger for control. So you think, which much people prefer, right? I'd rather, I don't really cuss, I don't really get drunk, I attend church, I'm, I'm pretty well-to-do, I've got control of my life, and this is the rich young ruler in most of us. So all you do is you swapped out anger for control. You're, you're still not good. And here's the concern with this, this idol swapping that's pervasive in Christian culture. Here's what's happening, um, is because there's been no worship alteration in your heart, and you're consistently just trying to be more moral, and you're consistently plagued by just behavioral change, is the problem is you're still God. You're still God. Because regardless of what the sin area is. I mean, put greed in there, put gluttony in there, put, put lust in there, put, doesn't matter, alcohol, it doesn't matter what you want to fit in that category. Here's the thing, um, lust was not in your heart to reveal that you could be God, you could overcome it by your own vitality. It was to reveal that you need a savior, right? So here's the, here's the problem. If, if you somehow just avoid those things or by your own vigor and own strength, you somehow overcome for a season, you thinking kind of shoving those things down the drain. They don't really sprout up even though they're just like weeds. So your yard looks great for three weeks and then it comes back again and you're wondering why. It's because you've done this crazy cycle, right? You, let's say your issue's lust and, and by your own strength you do it. You're now saying, man, I'm God. I just defeated that. That circles you all the way back to Genesis 3, which is the fundamental problem, which is you are not God. You're trying to be God and you can't. And so this treason against the king of the universe just continues in this horrible cycle until if you're humble enough to repent and say, I can't do this. I can't defeat this. It's like pushing a car up a hill. Eventually my knees are going to buckle and the car's going to roll back and crush me. I need a champion who can stand for me, a strength that's outside of me. Someone who rose from the dead. Listen, you will find zero victory. You'll find seasons. You'll find months. You'll find time. If God's mercifully might even give you a year, but eventually that thing will come back to haunt you perpetually over and over and over until you meet Christ. Until he in his gospel says, I make dead hearts alive. You need to be worshiping something else. You need to be enjoying something else. You need to be seeing something else. And it doesn't matter what scenario there is so that now all of a sudden... Scriptures, counseling, community, they're not about magically fixing you. They're about pointing you to a God and a Savior who should be your pursuit and your adoration and devotion and worship. Which is why David shows us, go back to Psalm 16, he shows the fuel to all of this, verse nine. This is why David now can say these things. Verse nine, therefore my heart is glad And my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, and you will not let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, in your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now when this was written here in regards to revelation revealed, like like Christian history, redemptive history, um. And commentators are all over the place on this, on how much David really understood about a future resurrection and Jesus and all that. Um, but the Jews had some idea of the afterlife. It just wasn't fully developed. So, so David is saying here, this love I have with God, like this enjoyment I have of God, this, this, these pleasures I have with God and pursuing Him and making Him my aim, this, this amazing relationship that I have in, in knowing Him and pushing headlong into Him, he goes, there's no way that death could strip that from me. He's going, that can't be possible. He's saying it not with, I don't know what he's saying with certainty, but he's saying it with certainty in the sense of he knows enough about God to know there's got to be something else that's going to happen. There's got to be someone else that's going to come and and not allow even death itself because he's showing here that that I know I'm going to see God face to face. That that word presence means face. He's going, I know God, I'm going to see you face to face. I know even death itself is going to strip away this this glory I'm experiencing. He must have known what Moses said when Moses said, hey, show me your glory, God. Show me the ultimate thing. And God goes, I can't, it would kill you. And David goes, I know I'm going to see that. I know I'm going to see that. I know that's going to happen one day to me. Give me the ultimate experience. Um, there's a, if, if you study in this text, um, Spurgeon, has ama- Spurgeon has amazing things to say about everything. But, but Spurgeon was, was, kind of goes back to uh, this idea that I think even C.S. Lewis pulls from. When C.S. Lewis, I think, called it like this God's creative rapture. Um, and, and Spurgeon has different lingo for it or words, but it's all about God, how, how when he made the universe, when he created humanity, it was from the overflow of his delight and joy, and and as he did that, he sowed that into parts of his creation. You can look at Proverbs 8 and uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and other, other aspects of this, and what's amazing is if you look at every other ancient pagan religions, you'll see that creation was apparently birthed forth through opposing gods and forces and violent battles, yet the God of the scriptures is the only place I can see where God actually created, Created out of delight and joy he creates it creates impersonalness so when you taste when you see when you hear when you experience aspects of God, god's creation that you love that you're blown away by it's it's never going to be at the fountainhead that's the problem and david's saying i've gotten to the fountainhead like I'm not just tasting shadows or seeing shadows, I'm actually at the fountainhead that is bursting forth all these hints of joy. David's saying, I'm going to have that. I'm going to be fully in the face of God one day. Now, how do we gain access to the fountainhead then? If our hearts are perpetually wandering, if they're perpetually going after this, this, this place of ease, this place of security, this place of contentment, this place of my soul's not satisfied, my soul's not rested, well, how do we get to the fountainhead and not just taste from the sprinkler? How do we get the fire hose in our mouth, right, and just, just, turn it on you can't even contain it it's the imagery here what's amazing is if you look at acts 2 and peter gets up and he preaches the first christian sermon you know the text he uses this one he rips this text from psalm 16 after the resurrection of jesus christ you know the only way that you can actually get to the fountainhead The Apostle Peter answers it for us in Acts 2, and you can can read it. David didn't quite know this. He was pointing to a greater David, a greater descendant, this God who absolutely would not be abandoned to Sheol, who absolutely would not see corruption, but would raise him back to life. And because he raised him back from the dead, you and I have the assurance of a resurrection, that we will see God face to face, that we can enjoy his pleasures now and his pleasures forevermore. He helps us see this, that we will get restoration of the life that was lost. Now this is why the, the epicenter of who we are as Christian people, of our joy, of our pursuit of God, of our enjoyment of his name, hinges upon the resurrection. It is not just a message of cross, it is empty tomb. It is not just a message of death, but we get life. It is, it is a message of fullness, that we die to ourselves, not to just ultimately die, but to find life elsewhere in him. The resurrection is necessary for your pursuit of God and experiencing all that David's experiencing in God. Now, um, here's the question then. If, If this is true, how exactly does the resurrection do this? Colossians 1 answers it. It's an amazing, amazing text in Colossians 1 where he shows you how the resurrection allows you to walk through the verbiage of Psalm 16. Paul writes this in Colossians 1. He says in verse 21, and you... That's you and me, not just the church at Colossae. You were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He says you were alienated. You know what that is? That's Psalm 16. You were chasing other gods. See, the scriptures consistently teach that all that God made... And all that God created was not so that your joy and your worship would terminate on creation itself but point beyond it to something greater than itself which is the creator. And the problem is, even though those things have never satisfied us, will never satisfy us, and have no hope of satisfying us, we still run to creation. Romans 1, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We are idolaters. That's where identity is. It reveals it, so we chase it. That's why we're alienated. We want God's stuff. We don't want Him. We think joy is found in His stuff, and joy is not found in Him. This is sin. Sin is the false promise. You will find greater pleasure, greater joy, greater worth, greater fulfillment, more security, of unshakable foundation if you just have that and don't take him. That's sin. It's just not believing that. Unbelief. Boil every sin down to just not believing. As soon as you... Here's the thing. Psalm 34, taste and see the Lord is good. Brothers and sisters, some of you have not tried Christianity. You've just tried to be good. You've just tried to be the Christian person. You've just tried to attend groups. You've just tried to come in and sing. You've Those are wonderful things. But you've never pursued him. You've never tasted him. You've never gone after him. You've never actually pursued the truth and walked in the obedience of the things that you were taught. Here we're seeing we're alienated. This is why we are alienated from God because instead of running to him, we run to his stuff thinking that will fulfill us forgetting all of his stuff was given so that we'd ultimately find enjoyment of him. And this is why it leads to a hostile mind. You don't start out in a hostile mind. You start out alienated, which you can't deal with. So that leads to a hostile mind. Here's why it leads to hostility. You have to blame someone for the unhappiness and discontentment you're perpetually feeling. So because creation itself will never fully satisfy you, you have to blame someone. So it's my spouse's fault, it's my job's fault, it's my children's fault, it's the world's fault, it's God's fault. There's just someone you look for to blame. You're hostile. That's why we blame as a culture. Adam and Eve in the garden, that's why out of the gate, the first marriage, man and woman have to blame because sin, the moment they sinned, separated, alienated them from God the way that he designed them to live. And we need restoration, which leads to evil deeds. Here's the love, evil deeds don't just sprout up. Not just, oh, all of a sudden, you know, like I, no, 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 evil deeds come from you being alienated and which leads to a hostile mind, which leads to evil deeds. Isn't that amazing? We're born alienated, which leads to hostility. Evil deeds don't just come out of nowhere. So maybe just you lack fullness of life, and so you blame your husband or wife. Maybe when you got married, there were some cute things in them, and then you thought you could train the other things out of them the longer you got married. So you just ignore them. You forgot that your spouse was not given to you to make you happy, but to reveal that you needed a savior. Maybe, maybe you blame your children because you lack fullness of life, right? You wanted Derek Jeter and Eli Manning, and they're not the athletes you wanted them to be. So you're bitter about that. Or maybe you thought they should be smarter than they are. One thing I, I find in the Burden County area is we want 10-year-olds that are 40-year-olds. We don't want the job of discipling, of maturing, of the hard work of teaching and instructing and loving. We want them just to magically become something. And We forgot that even our children were given to reveal how much we need Christ, and how he is their pastor and shepherd, and how he is the good father to point to when we as fathers and mothers make mistakes. That we confess our sins regularly, showing them that you can confess your sin to this God who's eager to forgive our sin. Uh, Maybe you blame it on your work. Maybe you lack fullness of life, so you blame your work. If you just had a different boss, if you just had more income, if you just had... Maybe you blame God. God, if you were just like this, or if you just did this for me, or they don't have fullness of life and that's what it's revealing that's how evil deeds happen thank god the text doesn't stop there right praise god it doesn't say hey man you're alienated you're hostile mind doing evil deeds Kicks the can, all headed to hell. Like, good thing he doesn't say that. He, the text doesn't stop. The text actually continues with wonderful news. He has, now that's Jesus reconciled. This is why you need reconciliation. Maybe you guys have heard that term your whole life growing up in church. This is why you need reconciliation. Is because you were alienated. Because you wanted God's stuff. You pursued creation, not the creator. You followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. Your great, 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 great mother and father. Right? So he says he's reconciled. How? In his body of flesh by his death in order to present to you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. I love this. God deals with our alienation in Jesus Christ. We all wanted to drink from a fountain that wasn't him. We all wanted to go to another fountainhead. Didn't want to go to him as our joy, him as our, our pleasure, him as our pursuit. Want to go to something else. He sees that. He rescues us. He actually invades time and history. He incarnates in the work of the person of Jesus Christ. He, he comes, and here's what's amazing. He reconciles us back to God by removing the alienation, which you can't deal with. You can trim your weeds. You can mow over your evil deeds your whole life through moralism, but you cannot change your alienation. That's the problem. So many people attend church and think, I just need to be more moral. If I'm nicer or or I'm kind of, you know, more kind of approachable to God, then he'll like me. That's not the message of the gospel. That's not in the Bible. The Bible teaches that he comes and saves us and makes us new. You don't need to be nicer. You need a new heart. You need a new mind. You need to be totally eradicated from your old self and be set forth to pursue something different outside of you. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know what you've been taught. I don't know what you've heard, but you are not in this room so you can leave with more principles to be a more moral individual. You will live an exhaustive, frustrated, bitter life. You need to come to the fountainhead and see that he does this for you, that he removes your alienation. Here's what's amazing, it says he takes his holy, spotless life, he lived a total above-approach life before God on your behalf as he lived this life and he dies in your place. He gifts you literally all that he did. It's accomplished for you because of Christ, this great exchange, Luther calls it, and now actually you get his holy, spotless, above-approach life before God. So so he takes your alienated heart, hostile mind, doing evil deeds, and he gives you his holy, spotless, above reproach life before God. And now you get to enjoyment pursue him. And now you know that the pursuit is him and not just his stuff. This is the good news. This is the good news, brothers and sisters. This is why moralism will never save you or change you. You need a resurrection. You need Acts 2. You're chasing other gods, and it's multiplying sorrows. Maybe not sorrows like you see. Some of you are Christians, and, and, and listen, you've had or are in that season called the desert. That's the Christian word, right? Oh, I'm in a desert. Yeah, that desert. I think you've had a song about it years ago, the desert. I'm just dry, right? Um, I never want to take away from you that that's a real hard spot to be. Listen, God and love might lead you to the desert, There's nothing that that kills idols better than the desert, to be honest, where he can lead you back to the only place that life can be found, where he strips you of everything. He may do that, but, but here's my fear is, please don't go there yourself. Please don't go there on your own choosing. It's so burdensome to hear people go, I'm so thirsty. Okay, here's water. No, 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 but I'm so thirsty. But I just really need a drink. Okay, here's gallons of water. No, 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 I'm like really thirsty. Right? And we're just like screaming at each other, going, you drink from the well, drink from the fountain. Listen, don't be surprised if there's no life, if you're not attached to the source of life. Don't be shocked if you're dehydrated, if you're not drinking from the well. Like, don't be surprised by those things. Man, he, he says eagerly come, and here's what's so awesome. Jeremiah says, you seek me, you'll find me when you seek me with your whole heart. He ain't some terrible father, some cruel father that's out there playing hide-and-seek, not letting you find him. Jackson and I love hide-and-seek, my five-year-old. We just love it. Listen, you know what he hates is when I hide, and I purposely never come out so he can't find me. Can't stand it, right? He's just looking everywhere. I find the best spots in the house. It's this little game that I have inside. It's sin in me, but I just, I'm not going to let him find me. So I'll find the, the creepiest spot, the place I can be where I know he won't find me. That, that's not God the Father. He's not going, going hide-and-seek, going, hey, come look for me. You'll never find me. Go, man, you want to seek me with your whole heart? You'll find me. I'm playing some sick game of hide and Go seek with you. Come to the well. I've told you where you can come to drink. I've told you who I am. I've told you not to do that. I've told you not to touch that and taste that. I told you that would lead to destruction and disaster. We just keep going back. I'm so thirsty. I'm more dehydrated. It's like when you drink Coca-Cola after running a marathon, thinking that's going to help you, and you're just thirstier. You need the, the water of Jesus Christ. I've met far too people who've punted on Christianity because they've never tried it. Oh, you've tried to be good. You've tried church. You've tried to quit addictions and vices. That's not Christianity. Uh, that's your will trying to triumph over a spiritual power that just laughs at your strength. You need Him. David will say, the entirety of the scriptures will say, our ability to be unshakable, to be secure is the ongoing ethic of confessing sin because we know God's eager to forgive us our sin. And we're eager to admit the other wells that don't satisfy that we chase after and we continually run back to him through the empowerment and help of his Holy Spirit so that we can grab hold of the seriousness of not just knowing about him but knowing him. That's why he says at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I just want to ask God to do that in our hearts. I'm going to ask God just to reveal in your hearts. I don't know what it is in your life. I don't know what you're chasing. I don't know what your identities are that reveal what you worship, but but only God alone can help you in this moment, can give you illumination, can give you strength, whether it's you remembering what was done for you in the work of Jesus Christ, that he alone satisfies, that he alone forgives sin, that he alone gives righteousness, What is God revealing? What is the Holy Spirit of God revealing to you where you bank your foundation that you know is shaken, that you would know is not a promise to you? God wants to relieve you and free you from the false gods that multiply sorrow. He wants to reveal your sin in his grace to bring you to him. He wants you to know the pleasures forevermore, that you can see God face to face in glory if you trust in the work of his son, Jesus. He wants you to know that you can enjoy him now, not just in eternity. He wants you to run after him, not just believe in him. For some of you, that might be community, that might be pursuing discipleship, that might be aggressively getting here not so that you can be more righteous but to be fed and nourished and reminded and instilled on the saving benefits of Christ through the family of faith that God has given us to walk in this newness of life with and among others of you maybe you're alienated and for the first time God graciously revealed that to you and He says, if you repent of that sin of alienation, of chasing his stuff and not him, of wanting other gods and not him, of trying to run and manage your own life, that that is idolatry, that if we would just keep the first commandment, the rest would follow, have no other gods before me. Your heart can be put at rest today. You can drink from the well, which is Jesus. You can have him, come to him. He says, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. John 4, the woman at the well. He says, you can have water that satisfies where you're never thirsty again. He says, about the bread, you can eat this bread and you'll never hunger again. Take Christ this morning. Believe in his name, believe in his work. Holy Spirit, help us to do that. Give us your thoughts. Give us your passions. Give us your desires. God, renew us. Conform us to the image of your son, Jesus. As we take the supper today, Lord, might we be reminded of the saving benefits of Christ. God that destroyed our idols to give us the one true God. Thank you for breaking your body and shedding your blood. Might that nourish us in profound ways. Might it help us in our pursuit of you and in you removing the idols that we worship. May we be able to say like David, you, you know the path to life. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You are my portion. You are my lot. I will not be shaken. Give us security in Jesus' name. Amen.